truly we give honor to God. You may be seated. Who is the head of our life? We're excited about the Lord and what God is doing in the midst of his people. Hallelujah. Praise team did a wonderful job. We salute you. Musicians, we salute you. We're thankful for the Lord's anointing and grace gift in each of your lives. Today is Father's Day, or it's the day we set aside every year to celebrate fathers. As Elder Marshall said, every day is Father's Day. I only wish that everyone believed that. They're probably quicker to believe that every day is Mother's Day than they are every day is Father's Day. But I'm thankful for the one day that we get that the world might celebrate or everyone in the world might celebrate fathers. It's kind of funny, any man can be a father, but not every man can be a dad. But I do salute the fathers and say unto you, Happy Father's Day to everyone that's under the sound of my voice. I have to say that I miss my own father. He transitioned into glory to be with our Heavenly Father forever. Bishop was a great man, a wonderful father, a great grandfather, and really a good friend. So I say to you, RJ, I miss you, and I'll never forget everything that you've taught me. I love you, Dad. There truly was no one like you. They didn't just break the mold. The mold disintegrated after you were formed. I can only pray that you're proud of your son. And while you're up there hanging out with God and the saints that have gone on before us, help us today celebrate our faith in God with a dance, as only you could do. I say to you, Dad, dance. Dance, Dad, dance. Hallelujah. I can envision him now doing his little one hand on the stomach, one hand up, and thinking he had some salsa. And my mother laughing the whole time, asking him where his rhythm was. But we, we thank God. We thank God. Here we are coming together after some time apart, but still not everyone is gathered together. I'm thankful to the Lord for those of you that have pressed your way to be here in the house of God. But I've noticed that we've become quickly comfortable with church via technology. There's something to be said about the urgency the church once had to come together and marvel at the awesomeness of God our Father. It leads me in my prayers and discussions with the Lord on what to talk about today. God shifted me from the series that we were in, speaking about the identity that we have in Christ. And we'll get back to that. But today, God has pressed me to address a major issue that I see in the church. I call this the no-fire Christianity. 
It consists of having a mediocre approach to our salvation in the face of God. There's no fire anymore. There's no zeal. There's no enthusiasm for the things of God. There is no by any means necessary to get into the face of God. And the resulting tragedy is a half-hearted and powerless church in a hell-bent world. I've often said that when chaos is predominant, it can only excel where authority has not been established. And if all authority has been handed over to Christ, and Christ be in us, then all authority has been handed over to us. And if all authority has been handed over to us, yet chaos is reigning, something is wrong. Because when authority enacts itself upon chaos, chaos comes into order. This is what we learn looking at God in the beginning when he hovered over the chaotic earth and he began to speak and things came into order even as he declared. So can you, by the indwelling power of God, the fullness of who God is in Christ, in you, establish order in the midst of all the chaos that you see. If you remember when I taught on the book of Revelation, and I know some of you may have forgotten, and some of you might say that was a while ago. Uh, during that series, I had told you that there are three major divisions of the book of Revelation. The first division is basically a vision of the glorified Christ. The next grand division deals with the church age and comprises the time between the ascension of Jesus and the rapture of the church. That would be the period of time that we are in now. The church age seems to be symbolically described by these seven churches that are located in John's time in Asia Minor. Revelations 1 and 11, write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches, Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. While these seven churches were actual churches, they are also the representation of all the churches throughout the span of human history. Each message to these churches applies to each and every one of us who calls ourselves the church. Who is the church? We are the church. Then God is speaking directly to each of us. They speak to us prophetically of the church age, beginning with Ephesus, a church whose love was waning and growing cold and extending to Laodicea, a church that was lukewarm. Second, they speak to us practically, prophetically and practically. Today's churches won't endure a problem that has not been addressed in the words of John to these seven churches. Everything that God speaks to these seven churches are issues that are prevalent in the church of today. Third, they speak to us powerfully. 
prophetically, practically, and powerfully. Revelations 3.22 says, Anyone who has an ear should listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. I want you to, I would tell you to grab your neighbor's ear, but I know we're in the time of don't touch nobody. So why don't you touch yourself at the side of your head and make sure you got some ears. If you don't have any ears, then you don't have to listen. But if God gave you some ears, he gave you ears to do what? To hear what the Spirit of the Lord is saying. Fourth, they speak to us presently. Prophetically, practically, powerfully, and presently. This is not just what God has said, it is what God is saying. You got to remember, in God there is no past, there is no future, there is only now. So every time you go to the Word, the Word of God as the expression of God is something that is being spoken right now in your right now situation. It's not about something that has happened, it is about something that is occurring right now. The Word of God is speaking to you presently to deal with a present issue that is affecting the full working of His grace in your life. And lastly, they speak to us personally. This is not what God is saying in a general form, but it is what God is saying to each and every one of us personally. God is trying to have a personal conversation with you. The church is made up of people just like you and I. So I ask that you open your ears, your mind, and your heart to what I will release to you today, that the spiritual fire may continue to burn within you. There isn't enough time to address everything that's said to all of the seven churches. God has pushed me to address one of these churches specifically because it is the one that's being manifested right now. While we use excuses not to come together, we're too busy, we're concerned about COVID-19 and a variety of other issues we use as excuses. This is what God sees. Because when you really want to do something, when there's a fire in you to do something, you don't let anything keep you from doing it. If you look out the course of your life, you'll find that when you really wanted something, you went after it, full fire, and didn't let anything stop you. And if anything got in your way, you moved it out of your way or figured out a way around, over, or under it. Write to the angel of the church in Laodicea, and it says, the amen... The faithful and true witness, the originator of God's creation, says, I know your works, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I am going to vomit you out of my mouth 
because you say I am rich. I have become wealthy and need nothing. And you don't know that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. I advise you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so that you may be rich, white clothes so that you may be dressed and your shameful nakedness not be exposed, an ointment to spread on your eyes so that you may see. As many as I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be committed and repent. Listen, I stand at the door and knock. If any one hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and have dinner with him and he with me. The victor, I will give him the right to sit with me on my throne, just as I also won the victory and sat down with my father on his throne. Anyone who has an ear should listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. Now, in part, I'm talking to some of us here. In majority, I'm talking to those of us who refuse to come back to the house of God. What does the phrase, the amen, the faithful and true witness mean? Well, the word amen means it is so or let it be. It means he is the factual Christ. He doesn't just say amen. He is the amen is what is said. Whatever he says, you can bank on it. He's not going to lie. He's not going to tell you something that's not true. He will only tell you exactly what you need to hear. God is saying to you today exactly what you need to hear. The Lord Jesus Christ is the factual one. And not only that, he is the faithful one. He is the faithful and true witness. He is also the forceful one. He is the beginning of creation. He created everything. He is sovereign over the church. He is the keeper and sustainer of life, absent Christ, we cease to exist. I showed you in Revelation 1, the Lord Jesus Christ is standing in the midst of seven golden uh, lampstands fed by oil. Now, these lampstands are an illustration of the church, which is the light of the world. You remember the Bible says that the church is the light of the world. We sing songs about it, this little light of mine. I'm going to let it shine, oh, this little light of mine. I'm going to let it shine, this little light of mine. I'm going to let it shine, let it shine, let it shine, let it shine. Then we got smart. We said, ain't nothing little about my light. And we said, this great light of mine. I'm going to let it shine, oh, this great light of mine. I'm going to let it shine, this great light of mine. I'm going to let it shine, let it shine, let it shine, let it shine. Something about the old church, the old songs. The, the Bible tells us in Matthew 18 and 20, For where two or three gather together in my name, I am there among 
them. I see more than two or three gathered. That means that God is here in our midst today. Speaking to you, telling you what you need to hear right now. So anyone who has an ear should what? What the Spirit says to the churches. Who's the church? Revelations 3 and 16 contains a strong warning. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I am going to vomit you out of my mouth. So God is saying that there is a sin so vile that it nauseates him. It turns God's stomach. It makes God sick. There is something that we do that in the face of God, it makes God puke. You know, like some times when babies first do their poop, and you get that whiff, and you get that feeling in the back of your throat, and you start getting that acid reflux, and I'm, I'm trying to in, put a picture in your head, and it starts coming this is what we do to God this sin is the sin of lukewarmness lukewarmness is just a little too cold to be hot and just a little too hot to be cold it's too cold to boil but it's too hot to freeze it's the sin that is probably the most prevalent sin in existence in the church of today. And who is the church? So it is the most prevalent sin that is affecting your life. And if the sin that is probably the most prevalent in the church today is affecting you, and you are the church to whom God is speaking, God is trying to let you in on something that is vital to your success as a believer. You see, God's not talking to those who hate him because these folks are already cold. They're already waiting for judgment. He's not talking to those that are set on fire for him. The zealots who have a burning, glowing passion to grow closer to God and to give God the glory. All they think about is God. All they talk about is God. All they do day in and day out is God. God this, God that. They, you wonder sometimes, is there anything else that they want to be engaged with? They don't talk about favorite movies. They don't talk about favorite um, uh, eating places. They don't talk about favorite clothes. They don't talk about favorite cars. All they can find themselves thinking and talking about is God. These are the zealots that God is not talking about. Instead, God is speaking to those who sit in between the self-satisfied, and we know them as half-hearted Christians. Now, I don't want to hurt anybody's feelings, and I'm not speaking today to beat anybody up. That's not what this is about. 
but I've been pastoring long enough to know that most people who attend church fall into this half-hearted Christianity category, and it breaks my heart. So how do you know if you're lukewarm? Well, I'm going to give you six areas in your life and then get out of your way that you can examine so that you can formulate your own determination as to where you are in your lukewarmness with God. Let's start with sanctification. A little girl prayed, Lord, make me good. Not too good, though. Just good enough so I don't get a whooping. That's how many Christians feel about personal holiness. They consider holiness old-fashioned. Jesus knew about this kind of indifference when he said, Isaiah prophesied correctly about you hypocrites as it is written, these people honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. Do you have a desire to be personally holy before God? Do you honor God with the entirety of your life? Or are you only giving God a portion of your life for which is holy? While the rest of you is the part that you hang up on the shelf so you can deal with stuff as you see fit. You sing gloriously on Sunday morning in the church. But is there a daily burning passion in your heart for holiness? Think about it. When Elder Marshall or LaRonda send out the song list, is everyone on the praise team eagerly waiting to receive that text? How many have actually reached out to Elder Marshall or LaRonda when the text did not come early enough because I'm just so desirous to learn the next thing of God that I want to sing a praise unto God. I want to glorify God with this grace gift that he has given me, this anointing which destroys the yoke of bondage, not just in my life, but God is using me as a tool of anointing to destroy bondages in everyone's life that hears the praise that flows from my lips. Is there an urgency? Do you reach out? Elder Marshall, it's Monday. We haven't gotten that song list yet, and I need to get about my practice. How many, when you get the song list, the first thing you do is flip over to YouTube to at least listen to that list? Or do you go, yep, here it is. I'll get to that later. Doing something else right now. How many of you spend hours and hours and hours trying to perfect the gift that God has given you in alignment with what God is releasing? Because as I said to you last week, we don't sing songs just for the sake of singing songs. We sing songs because it is part of ministry. And ministry is uh, purpose to make us better and to put the devil on his heels. How enthralled or engaged are we? These are the questions you ought to be asking yourself. These are the questions. Or is it, we sung that song before, I know it, I don't need to be bothered with even listening to it. We've played that song before, I don't need to be bothered practicing it. I can figure it out. It's just a general beat. Is my timing right? 
Am I breaking it down right? Am I coming in on key or am I making up my own key? What am I investing in this? This is all an example of the desire that we have because, again, what we're doing, the Bible declares we ought to be doing as unto who? The Lord. I'm not doing this because I'm trying to impress somebody. I'm not doing this because necessarily the church needs me to do this. I'm doing this because this is a gift that God has given me to be able to put the devil on his heels, to be able to wage war. I'm a soldier in the army of the Lord, and this is my weapon of warfare. It's my praise. So every time that I praise God in song, I'm slaying devils. But is there zeal there for me to perfect my faith? Are we Michael Jordans of the praise team? Or are we the ones that couldn't even make the bench squad? I'm not talking about sinless perfection, but your goal each and every day ought to be to live holy before God. If you fill your thought life with the things of God, it becomes difficult to live outside of his holiness. Our churches are filled with people who live on the edge of personal holiness. For instance, they will not tell an out-and-out -out lie, but they tell little white lies. They see someone they don't like, and they say, it's good to see you, liar. They tell a friend, I'll pray for you, but they never take time to pray. They may not steal, but they don't pay their debts. They don't commit adultery, but they laugh at filthy jokes. Or they tease their senses with lasciviousness as displayed on television. Anyone who has an ear should listen to what the Spirit is saying to the church. Who is the church? Then you ought to listen to what God is saying to you. Second, there is service. Where are the Bible study teachers who are so burdened for their classes that they weep in prayer over each and every member? Where are the Christians who are reaching out in love to their unsaved neighbors? Where's the church member who is inviting unsaved people whom they meet in the grocery store or at the gym to come on to church? How many preachers do you know who preach with a fiery urgency and filled with tears of conviction? I read it once said that preaching is very much like making any other kind of speech. You don't need to have a preacher tone. You don't need to have preacher mannerisms. It's just like making any other kind of speech. Yet many of us don't believe the preacher has preached if he or she has not put on a show or preached with linguistic excellence functioning under homiletics, uh, which is the art of the sermon. My prayer is that there would be less showman preaching 
and more preachers who preach with exactitude and eloquence, but also with a burning fire in their hearts that's demonstrated in the passion of the message they loose. Let me get back to singing. Point six. The most important thing about a song is not that it is in perfect pitch or that even every word is memorized. The most important thing about a song is that it is sung in the spirit. You have to remember we're not singing to record an album. We're not trying to sell records or CDs or start our own streaming platform. We sing to glorify and worship God. Everyone singing in the choir or on the praise team should be filled with the Spirit of God. I don't know where we deviated from the path of holiness in our worship, but music and song should not be a profession. It should be something you can't help yourself from doing because God gifted you to do it. So you want to do it as much as humanly possible in thanks to God who gifted you in the first place. When singing and playing music for God is your passion rather than a means to an end, you have entered the real realm of worship. Let me show you what God's word declares are the requirements for singing. These are the requirements for singing. Ephesians 5, 18 and 19. And don't get drunk with wine, which leads to reckless actions, but be filled with the spirit. Speaking to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing and making music to the Lord in your heart. So we should sing with gladness. Not, oh Lord, it's Sunday again. We should sing with an urgency. I can't wait to get to the house of the Lord to exercise my gift. We should sing with feeling. We ought to be raptured right in the middle of our song. We ought to lose ourselves. One of the things I really like when I see um, um, Cynthia Marshall sing, when I see uh, Jaleesa sing, when I see Jocelyn sing, when I see uh, my sister Lisa sing, when I see uh, LaRonda sing, when I see many of the people sing, and they get to that point where all of a sudden, they're lost. They're not singing words anymore. They're just crying out to God. They're bent over in worship. The Bible tells us that when real worship comes, the singer can't sing. The dancer can't dance. The musician can't play. When real worship comes... Why am I praising? I'm praising to break an atmosphere so that worship can come. 
The earth will praise God, but only the children of God can worship him. Sometimes I sing so I can get all the nonsense out the way so real worship can enter the house. We should sing with tears in our eyes because we feel the words and the power and the love of God being released in and through us. You know what it was that drove the devil crazy? When he would express the glory of God into all creation, he could feel what was happening. When we sing, we ought to feel what's happening. We ought to be raptured so much in it that all the cares of this life vanish away because we are in the presence of an almighty God. Our singing should not only bless people, but it should bless us. Some of us sing... We put on a show, we go take our seat as if that's what it is all about. I would rather see you sing and become drunk in the spirit to where you can barely but walk to your seat. Sometimes you have to be lifted or carried or guided because you're just so caught up in what God is doing in and through you. Because like Lucifer, you have felt the transfer of God through you to the world. Singing is the expression of God into life. So when you sing... You should feel the flow of God through you. When you play, you should feel the flow of God through you. Every singer ought to dominate like MJ. Every musician ought to dominate like Tiger Woods. It's not good enough to just be good. You've got to be the best, and the only way to be the best is by having an urgency within your spirit to function, to practice your gift. Scriptures. Do you truly love the word of God? Some of us love some of the word, but not all of the word. We like the word that makes us the head We don't like the word that makes us the tail. We like the word that makes us above. We don't like the word that makes us beneath. We don't like the word that makes us poor, but we love the word that makes us rich. We don't like the word that deals with long-suffering. We like the word that deals with deliverance. We like to parsec the word instead of taking the entirety of the word and just falling in love with it. When my wife and I were younger, there was an urgency between us to speak to each other on the phone. 
as she spoke, I hung on every word that came out of her mouth. When I spoke, she hung on every word that came out of my mouth. As a matter of fact, in the span of one conversation, in the span of one conversation, it sparked an urgency within my wife to want to hear from me every single day. Even to the breaking of rules. Because she didn't want anything to prevent us from being able to communicate because she had to hear whatever next it was I was going to say. She even enjoyed my singing. Now, you know that's somebody that's captivated by what's being said. Because if y'all think I can sing good now, I really could sing good back then. But are we truly in love with the Word of God? Not just when we are sitting in church or in a Bible study or... Uh, Are you in love with the word of God when you're at home alone? Are you starving to hear what God is saying? So many Christians believe in in the Bible in general, but don't believe it with any specificity. I would venture to say that the average Christian has never even read the entire Bible. I would dare to say that not every Christian could name the books of the Bible. Do you know that the entire Bible can be read through in 10 months at the pace of only four chapters a day? In 10 months' time, only reading four chapters a day, you can read every single word that is in the Bible. Do you believe everything you read in the newspaper? Well, we know if we read it on the Internet, it's true. If it's on the Internet, it's absolutely factual. If Dr. Google tells you thus and so, you run with that to the bank. You will take that, you'll start telling everybody what it is you just read that Dr. Google said. But what about the Bible? Now I'm going to ask you the hardest question of all. How much time do you spend reading the Bible compared to the time you spend surfing the Internet? How much time do you spend reading the Bible compared with your favorite television show? How much effort and energy do you put into the Word of God like you do in trying to figure out what's going to happen in the next episode of your favorite program. How much time and effort do you put into trying to figure out who should be the next person sitting on the throne in Queen's Landing than you do in trying to realize who is on the real throne. How much effort, 
How much time, how much energy, how much thought do you put into hearing and reading and seeing what God is saying? If you're like most Christians, you're spending more time with something you do not believe than you are with something that you say you believe. We are lukewarm about the scripture. We do not love the word of God as we ought to love the word of God. If we treated our significant others with the same attention that we give the word of God, many of us would be single. We'd be single. If every time our significant other wanted to do something and you said, nah, I ain't got time for you right now. My, my favorite show's on TV. Just don't say nothing. Be quiet. Oh, I got to go play my round of golf, so look, don't bother me. It's time to wash my car because my car's a little bit dirty. You stay in the house, I'm going to be outside washing my car. Don't mess with me. About five minutes before dinner is supposed to be, hey, what'd you make to eat? That's the time that you want to have a conversation. Not about nothing else but what's prepared to eat. And don't talk to me while I'm eating because I ain't got time for you. Now I'm paying attention to the flavor of my food. If this is the way we engaged each other, those of us who are married would be divorced and those of us who are single would stay single. Supplication. So many people in the church around the world today are lukewarm about prayer. As a matter of fact, most of the time we don't even pray unless we need something. We don't talk to God unless we're asking God for something. As if the only thing prayer is good for is for me to get something. Make my request known unto God. That's what prayer is. And I'm just telling God, look, I, 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 would like to, I would like a Bentley. And I, I'm just telling you because, you know, your word says, make my request known unto you. So I'm, I'm telling you, I, I want a Bentley. And I'm expecting because I asked and you're the creator and sustainer of heaven and earth. And the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. And they that dwell therein, somebody, somehow, some way is going to get me a Bentley. That's, that's what we think prayer is about. And then before we even find out whether God wants you to have a Bentley, we get up. Thank you, amen, I'm done. It is so. And then we start telling people, we get, thank you very much, baby. That's right, hallelujah. She's on it. She's with She's a, he, he preaching. But this is what we think prayer is all about. The average Christian doesn't spend 10 minutes a day interceding on the behalf of others. When was the last time you missed a meal to pray? When was the last time you stayed up all night to pray, regardless of the fact you needed some sleep? When was the last time you fasted and prayed for a day? I remember the last 24-hour prayer vigil we had here at GMFC. It was a struggle to get people to commit to spending a few hours, let alone 
24 hours, Bishop then lost his mind. He, he, he thinks I'm going to spend the whole 24 hours in the church? I got a life. I got stuff to do. I got people to see. Baby's kids need me. I, I'll give them maybe 30 minutes, an hour. Well, the devil looks at the modern lukewarm church today and laughingly says, you can have your big building, your fancy sound system, your exhaustive Bible classes, your multi-level organization, and all your comforts. You can have everything as long as you leave out earnest, heartfelt, consistent prayer that goes before the Almighty God and will not take no for an answer. Sadly, the, the good that our churches wish to accomplish often becomes the substitute for the best. We need to learn how to pray. The Bible says the urgent request of a righteous person is very powerful. James 5 and 16. The urgent request of a righteous person is very powerful. That means you, there, there, there's power when you spend time talking to God. Not just about you. Not just about the ones you love. But the Bible tells us to pray for our who? Enemies. Yeah, we're praying for them. God, take them out. My boss is getting on my nerves. He, she needs to get fired. And I need a promotion. Just move them out of the way. They're a stumbling block. Lord, remove them. That's how we pray for our enemies. Sacrifice. How many Christians do you know who sacrifice their lives daily for the glory of God and the saving of souls? I'm not talking about those uh, of you who have given uh, your lives overseas in foreign missions or those who uh, should be concerned about the person living next door to them so you have ministered God's grace to them. You don't have to go overseas to sacrifice your life for the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, sacrifice is laying down your life daily for God's use. Or better said, not my will, but thine will be done. Not what I want to do, but what you want me to do. 1 John 3 and 16 says, this is how we have come to know love. He laid down his life for us. We should also lay down our lives for our brothers. I'm almost done. Some people will not allow themselves to be embarrassed by bringing a Bible to work and putting it on their desks. Some are ashamed of the Lord Jesus Christ and will not even bow their heads to give a prayer of thanks for the meal when they're in a public place. Well, what about you? Do you give a little, but you are looking for a lot? Do you... Do as little as you can so that there's little inconvenience in your life. 
most of our giving has not changed our lifestyle. In 1874, Francis Havergal wrote this pledge, Take my voice and let me sing always, only for my king. Take my lips and let them be filled with the message from thee. Take my silver and my gold, not a mite would I withhold. Take my intellect and use every power as thou shalt chose. What do we do instead? We use our voice in compromising testimonies. We pass on opportunities to tell others about Christ. We hold on to our silver and gold with all our might, and we use our intellect and power for our own vain glory. We pray without fasting. We give without sacrifice. We witness without tears. It is no wonder we are reaping what we have been sowing. And they're soul winning. Do you have a passion for that next door neighbor who is doomed to hell without Jesus? Maybe you don't believe in hell. Maybe you don't believe the Great Commission was addressed to you. I'm not called to preach. Maybe you don't believe it is your solemn responsibility and glorious privilege to share the gospel of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. But Paul said, therefore, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do everything for God's glory. Imitate me as I also imitate Christ. Why does our Lord say, I wish that you were cold or hot? He would rather have you against him than pretend you love him with a lukewarm heart. You see, lukewarm Christians have done more to harm the cause of Christ than all the prostitutes, pornographers, and drug dealers combined. Lukewarm Christians are the alibi of sinners. They double-cross Jesus. They betray the cross. Jesus would rather have you on the wrong side of the fence than sitting on the fence. I'm convinced that if only one-tenth of those who named the name of Christ were on fire for the Lord, we would see a mighty revival sweep across our land. But we cannot reach the goal for stumbling over our own players. We're getting in our own way. Thinking over the last few weeks, you see the passion and the desire of the populace marching in the streets all across this nation on fire about what they believe. It's kind of funny. One Sunday I saw on Facebook a whole bunch of the church out there marching in support of what they believe related to a world situation. I'm going to tell you something that's going to be very stinging. You can march all you want. You can burn the city down if you want. Things are not going to get better. 
Now, some of you are thinking, well, Dag, Bishop, you, you're a little bit pessimistic, aren't you? No, I'm, I'm actually realistic. Things are not going to get better. I don't care what rules, what policies, what procedures they put in place. Racism is going to exist until Jesus comes back. Social classes are going to exist. Privilege, whether it's black privilege, white privilege, brown privilege, is going to exist until Jesus comes back. Why do you say that? Well, I say that because the Bible tells me things are not going to get better. They're going to get worse. Am I saying we shouldn't march? No, march. Do, do, do you, boo. But don't think that there's going to be some lasting, effectual change that all of a sudden we're going to come together and sing Kumbaya and the world is going to be a brilliantly, lovely, peaceful place. That's not happening until the reign of Jesus in the millennium after the tribulation. As a matter of fact, what you're seeing is only the precipice of the evil that's going to be unleashed in this world. This place is going to get so crazy that the Antichrist is going to come and people are going to scream out to him to be their savior. Even the Jews are going to see him as the second coming until they realize He's not everything he's cracked up to be. I'm not being pessimistic. I'm being biblicalistic. That's right. Preachers can make up their own words. I'm being biblicalistic. You got pessimists. You got realists. Then you got biblicalists. I'm a biblicalist. That's simply a person that believes what the Bible actually says. Does that mean we shouldn't try to engage in peace and all these things? No. The Bible tells me, practice peace with what? All men. That doesn't mean all men are going to practice peace with you. As a matter of fact, you better learn to duck or you're going to manifest turn the other cheek. G. Campbell Morgan, one of the greatest Bible expositors who's ever lived, said this, lukewarmness is the worst form of blasphemy. You see, lukewarm Christians say, Jesus, I believe in you, but you just don't excite me. I believe in you, but I don't intend to serve you with fire or fervor. What an insult to yawn in the face of the almighty God. This is what the lukewarm Christian does. Yawns. <sighs> like some of you are doing over this sermon. As you count the minutes. Wearing a mask to church has all of a sudden become very popular. Because they can't see the expression on my face. But why is lukewarmness so harmful? It's harmful because it sets you up for other sin. 
You see, the lukewarm Christian is a sitting duck for the devil. Let me illustrate. A husband and wife are happily married, uh, but the wife begins to feel less and less passionate. She starts to read love stories and begins to daydream about another life outside her home and marriage. One day at the gym, she meets a man who seems to be the personification of everything that a man ought to be and everything that she's read a man is in her novels. And before long, she knows it. The lukewarm heart has led her down a pathway of unfaithfulness because there was no fire or drive for her husband. How do you remain faithful to your husband or to your wife and not run off with another man or woman? How do you remain faithful to your wife and not run off? You stay in love. It's not enough to love. You must remain in love. You see, a person who is deeply in love will not go off with someone else. They will not kick you to the curb and start a whole new life. It's important, the older folks would tell the younger folks, everything you did to get your man or to get your woman, you don't stop doing it when you say, I do. If you dressed up to get him or to get her, you ought to still be dressing up to keep him or to keep her. Whatever you did. The time you spent, you still spend. The energy and the effort you put behind things that are between the two of you, you still do. We have to stop taking each other for granted. But when you're lukewarm, these are the things that you do. So let me close with the causes for lukewarmness. As you take an analytical look at yourself throughout this week, as you digest the word of God has been released into your hearing, released into your hearing so that you could digest the nutrients from it and expel out of you that which does not apply to you. The indifference of the Laodicean uh, uh, was, was caused by their ignorance. So why do we talk about lukewarmness? Because the Bible and the word of God tells us he would have us not be ignorant of the devices of the enemy. You see, they did not even know what their need was, which was to see their need. Revelations 3 and 17 sums it up. The cause of the lukewarmness is broken down into two phrases. Because you say, and you don't know. Because you say, I am rich, I have become wealthy and need nothing. And you don't know that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. Because you say, thus and so, 
it robs you of the knowledge of what you should know about who and what you are. You see, the lukewarm Christian is generally the last one to know that they're lukewarm. None are as blind as those who refuse to see. None are as deaf as those who have ears but will not hear. That's the reason John said anyone who has an ear should listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. You see, the Laodiceans were self-satisfied. Notice what John says in Revelations 3 and 18. I advise you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so that you may be rich, white clothes so that you may be dressed and your shameful nakedness not be exposed, an ointment to spread on your eyes so that you may see. You see, Laodicea was famous for three things. Famous for three things. It was famous for its wool, its wealth in gold, and its medical treatment center for blindness. So God is making a play here on words. He says, in spite of your wool, in spite of your wealth, in spite of your medicine, you still need holy fire. How did their self-satisfaction and complacency begin? Well, people cool down by degrees. Let's look at the degrees of separation from Ephesus, which was the first church exhorted in Revelation, and moved to Laodicea, the last church. When God addressed the church at Ephesus, he spoke about their programs, their power, and their purity. As you read in Revelations 2, 1 through 3, uh, what a wonderful church it was. Yet God said, one thing I have against the church in Ephesus. Nevertheless, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. So the Ephesians were not exhorted because they did not love the Lord. They had simply left their first love. If you are married, perhaps you remember your honeymoon. Somebody has jokingly said that the honeymoon is that period of time between I do and you better. But the honeymoon ought to never end. If you don't love your spouse more today than you did when you got married, then you love them less. How sad it is when people leave their first love. You see, first love is enthusiastic. First love is reckless. First love doesn't count the cost. First love says, I love you with all my heart, with all my soul, with all my mind. We have to keep that love hot and glowing and growing. That's what God means when he talks about you have lost your first love. That reckless love. That belief that we can accomplish anything together. Love. It's you and I against the world. The world be you know what. You and I to the end of days. 
for an eternity. My love grows more and more, stronger and stronger, more passionate every single day. I love you more today than I loved you yesterday, than I loved you three minutes ago. I love you more now. You're more beautiful. You're more hot. Trying to help you brothers out. Somebody said that the average church is so lukewarm, you have to backslide to be in fellowship. Was there ever a time when you loved Jesus Christ more than you do right now? You know, that time when you didn't care how long church service went? You know, we count the clock now. And we quick, oh, it don't take all that. They ain't got to sing like that. They ain't got to play like that. He ain't got to preach like that. Some of us are so reckless in our love, when we don't have anything to say, we just scream. While us sophisticated folk, get frustrated with it. We have to understand you when you're in that place of first love, you could care less what nobody else thinks. You could care less whether you like the way I do whatever it is I do to honor the love I have for my God. Is that where we are today? Was there ever a time when you loved Jesus more than you do right now? If there was, then to that degree, you have backslid. You are beginning to cool down. And before long, you're going to become room temperature. Now, my wife, my wife, likes room temperature water. I can't stand room temperature water. I need my water ice cold. Well, for me, ain't no sense in drinking it. I could be in a desert. I mean, I want the ice cold water. <laughs> it's not good enough that there's a mirage of water. It ought to be slightly frozen. That's the kind of water I like. I don't like room temperature. When you become room temperature, you'll look around and say, I must not be so bad. I'm like everybody else. But if you really get on fire for the Lord, people will think you're odd. Or start calling you names like, oh, you just think you're holier than thou. but I'm not concerned about what you think. How do you become lukewarm? You begin by assuming you're all right. But instead, you're cooling down by degrees. But there's a cure for lukewarmness. It would not serve you 
to identify an issue and not give you a solution. So let's take a look again at Revelations 3 and 18. I advise you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so that you may be rich, white clothes so that you may be dressed and your shameful nakedness not be exposed, and ointment to spread on your eyes so that you may see. The Laodiceans needed the gold of God's glory that had been through the fire. They needed the garments of God's righteousness. They thought that they were clothed. They came to worship service and looked so fine. But God said, you are naked. 1 Corinthians 2 and 14 says, But the unbeliever does not welcome what comes from God's spirit because it is foolishness to him. He is not able to know it since it is elevated spiritually. Do you remember Hans Christian Andersen's story? The emperor's new clothes? A couple of conniving men pretended to be tailors. Knowing the king's vanity about his clothes, they began a scheme to weave invisible garments. And the king bought into it. He took off all his clothes and put on the invisible suit. He walked in a royal procession down the streets to show everyone his magnificent clothes. At first, everyone exclaimed praises over what he was wearing. Then one little boy had the audacity to say, look at the king. He is altogether as naked as the day he was born. Are you rich today? Add up everything that you have that money cannot buy and death cannot take away. That is how you determine the level of your wealth. What happens to someone who is lukewarm? God says, as many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Therefore, be zealous and repent. Ask yourself, do I love the Lord with my God with all my heart? If not, am I willing to repent? Lord, forgive me. If you do not, he will rebuke and chasten you. You cannot simply waltz your way into heaven in a lukewarm condition without God meeting you along the way to chasing you. His word says repent. Lukewarmness is not weakness. It is wickedness. It is not a small sin. It is a great sin. If the greatest commandment is to love God with all of your heart, then the greatest sin is to not love God with all your heart. In the last days, our Lord says that lukewarmness will be the condition of the average church. How many of you want an average church? I just want to be like everybody else. They got church on Sunday from 10 to noon, so we should be out at noon. Maybe start at 1030. Because I want to be like everybody else. But God graciously says this. Listen, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and have dinner with him and he with me. I will give him the right to sit with me on my throne. Just as I also won the victory and sat down with my father on his throne. 
Anyone who has an ear should listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. You see, God is speaking to those who are in the church but are lukewarm. He says, I am standing at the door of your heart and knocking, and you refuse to open the door so that he can come in and sup with you. I'm too scared to come back to church because of COVID-19. Oh, I, I, I can worship God at home. I can praise God at home by myself. Nonsense. You have cooled down degree by degree. And then some of us don't even realize is that when we don't come, others who normally come with us don't come. So you then have now infested others with your lukewarmness. Hear what the Lord is saying. God is speaking those that are in the church what a loving Lord he is he loves us so much that even in our lukewarm state he doesn't let this moment pass by but he warns us of our condition so that we can repent what does repent mean, first lady? Turn. It simply means turn. What does repent mean? The way that I'm going, I will go no more. He's not asking you to be sorry about your direction. He's asking you to change your direction how many of you today are willing to change your direction how many of you today are willing to go back and do your first works engage that first reckless love again how many of you are willing to put God first in everything let him be your portion set this place ablaze because of the fire that's burning on you do you know what happens if I take a piece of wood that's on fire and I throw it into a house made of wood the house catches on fire. For this house to catch on fire, each of you pieces of wood needs to be on fire. So that when you come into this house, the fire of the Lord comes with you and engulfs this house 
so that people driving by think the place is ablaze. Just like the day of Pentecost. Something was different when God poured out his spirit. It set the place ablaze. As the old saints used to say, it's a mighty burning fire. You know that when you're on fire, you find it difficult to sit still? Light yourself on fire and see how long you just sit there. You're going to stop, drop, and roll. And you're looking for the next water source. Tell somebody to throw a blanket on you, something. But you're not just going to sit there. Lukewarm folk don't have a problem just sitting there. Doing absolutely nothing. And thinking that everything is all right with them. As a matter of fact, church folk that are on fire, you might think they have ADHD because they can't sit still. Always got to be doing something for the Lord. You'd be wanting to tell them, be still. But when you're on fire like them, you don't even notice their movement. You know who notices their movement? People who are sitting still. An airplane don't look like it's going fast when you're sitting in the plane looking out the window. Does it? Matter of fact, it looks like, like why are we still up in the air? Because it don't look like we're moving very fast. But step out the plane and see how fast 563 miles an hour, which is about the average speed of a plane, see how fast it looks when you're not in it. If you don't want to, or if, or if you're in a place where you're noticing the fire of other people, that's a warning sign to you that maybe your fire is burning out and you need to rekindle it. You need to rekindle it. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and lose his soul? It doesn't profit you to accomplish and acquire all temporal things in life because all of them are going to fade away. Only that which is done for Christ will last how long? Forever. We spend a whole lot of time doing stuff that's going to mean nothing tomorrow. As a matter of fact, in some families, the more wealth you gain, the more your relatives want you to die. Because they can't have it while you're still here. 
When your relatives start asking you what is your insurance policy, that's a sign. What are we willing to do? Are we willing to repent and to turn? turn away from our lukewarmness, to seek the face of God, to rekindle our fire, to be excited about the things that God has called us to do. I'll say this and I'll take my seat. Not everyone understands the game of golf. They don't understand why people that play golf play golf. Some people will tell you, you hit this ball, then you got to walk 100, 200, 300 yards after it and hit it again. And like, what sense does that make? But golf is funny. Because golf is something you either like or don't like. There are really no halfway golfers. If you like it, you could have the worst round of your life and still want to go back out and play. Because you're, you really like it. You're in love with it. You're vested in it. You'll try to make it better. You'll do what you can to learn, to read, to study, to understand how I can play this game better. Because golf has become something that you enjoy. If you don't like golf, you won't like golf. It'll just be some stupid game that people play. But what's commonly said is for those that really like golf, they have the golf bug. In other words, they'll spend even money to get better equipment, to look the part. Now, I may not always play the part. But there's never a day I don't look the part. Matter of fact, when I step out on the golf course, some people are expecting me to play like Tiger. People stand, stop, and watch. Because if you look like that, you sure enough got to be able to play. And sometimes I come through, sometimes not so much. Sometimes I'm striping them down the fairway 300 plus yards. Sometimes my ball, for some reason, got to be the devil. Turns like way left or way right. Don't know why that happened. Got to be spiritual forces out against me. Sometimes I shoot low scores, sometimes I shoot high scores. But you know something that never changes? My desire to be out there playing, figuring it out, understanding it, trying new things, doing new things, because I love it so much. As a matter of fact, I can't even explain to you why. I love it. When I'm done playing, my body hurts. I'm sore. I'm tired. I'm thirsty. I'm hungry. And I still want to play more. 
because there's this reckless love in me for that gain. Even when you're tired, thirsty, hungry, and hurting, is there a reckless love in you for God? Where when it seems like your prayers are working, and when it seems like God got deaf, are you still desirous of being in his face? I heard this joke that said, you know, I don't mind people saying things about me. But when you're right here and our eyelashes are entangled with each other, now we got a problem. But are we willing to have our eyelashes entangled with the eyelashes of God because we're just that close to him? We are in the face of God. So much so that you can't even differentiate between he and I and I and he. Where I look like God, when you see me, you see God. What did Jesus say? Show us the Father. Have I been so long with you that you do not know when you see me, you see the Father? Because I am the fullness of the Father. What do people see when they see you? Is it a lukewarm, half-hearted believer? Or is it somebody that's burning on fire for God? Hallelujah. 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 Amen. Amen. Let's celebrate.